I'd like to welcome you to another installment in our conversations on China's global sharp power. Today, we have an extraordinary guest with us, Chris Walker from the National Endowment of Democracy. He is the Vice President for Studies and Analysis at NED, which is a private nonprofit foundation dedicated to the growth and strengthening of democratic institutions around the world. And he oversees NED's multifaceted analytical work. But in particular, he's joining us today because Chris originated and coined the term along with Jessica Ludwig, sharp power, which has come to define our understanding of the way authoritarian governments are interacting assertively around the world with countries that are struggling to consolidate and uh, build out their democratic systems. I wanna welcome Chris to the program and, uh, and begin with a simple question, Chris. What is sharp power? Well, Glenn, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Sharp power, um, as we've seen it, is the sort of influence that tends to induce censorship in one form or another, or otherwise uh, limit discussion or manipulate the uh, actors that are engaged or impacted by such power. It tends not to have these features of attraction and persuasion, but tends to actually limit discussion fundamentally. And so that that's really been the way that we've seen it since we first pu put this idea into the public domain in 2017 um, and think it's an important way to at least test our thinking on these forms of influence and power in an era of authoritarian resurgence and democratic regression. Now, we've heard about soft power and hard power, but where does sharp power fit into um, to those? Well, I think broadly speaking, hard power has been understood to represent uh, kinetic forms of influence, uh, military force, and soft power, broadly speaking, has, been, has come to be understood as efforts to uh, win hearts and minds, efforts to attract and persuade audiences, to have forms of um, what's been called volunteerism, to um, engage uh, certain audiences and, and uh, induce positive uh, feelings about the actors that are generating such influence. I think as my colleagues and I look more closely at some of the modern expressions of influence coming from countries, including but not limited to China and Russia, there were elements of this influence that didn't fit neatly into those uh, two categories. And what we saw were much more forms of engagement, say in the university sector, or in the media sector or in such settings where um, elites or representatives of those sectors were um, trimming their sails, curbing their thoughts, being uh, conditioned in essence to steer clear of certain topics. And it struck us that uh, this was something that really required further reflection and scrutiny so that we didn't um, have a sense of complacency about the way we thought about these things and therefore not be able to address real challenges to democratic integrity and standards that had been building for quite some time in these sorts of institutions. So how has the application of sharp power changed, if at all, since you began defining the concept? Uh, certainly it's out there, it's under discussion. Has China um, begun to discuss what sharp power is? Have, Russia, have, have institutions in Russia begun to discuss what sharp power is and adapt well, I, I don't know the, the full extent to which those institutions themselves have been discussing this. I know from time to time there have been comments about um, this notion of whether those sorts of systems and the governments in particular in those systems 
are operating on the basis of what would be considered sharp power. I think what's most critical in this discussion is that the open societies that are deeply engaged with these now um, vibrant um, internationalist authoritarian powers have a recognition of this kind of influence so that they can uh, come to their own conclusion about how to react to it. So for example, I've used the, the, the university sector and the knowledge sector as, as examples. I think in many respects, the degree of engagement that uh, those sectors have had in the past is far different today from resources of, of different sorts saying, say coming from the Chinese party state. Uh, and there was a lack of preparation for what that implied in terms of how university departments or the development offices would treat those kinds of resources to, to ensure that topics were not put off limits, that agendas weren't somehow uh, manipulated or compromised. And that sort of idea replays itself across other important independent institutions and in open societies. And uh, in that regard, I'm not certain just yet whether um, China and Russia and say the Gulf states have necessarily adapted, but I do think the, the key issue is whether open societies and open societies, civil societies and governments have adapted. And that's still a work in progress. I think you put your finger on a key point here. Um, open democratic societies are at a bit of a disadvantage in confronting sharp power because the authoritarian governments that wield it often have very centralized um, uh, uh, organizations and institutions, ideologically, organizationally, and they enter countries with a clear agenda worked out in advance. And those countries in which sharp power is being applied often by the nature of their open societies are fragmented, decentralized. They have profound coordination problems when it comes to meeting the sharp power challenge. What do you think are the most effective strategies for translating the kind of admiration that we've achieved of this problem? Because in many countries, I think we understand now uh, that there is a challenge before us, but how do we translate that into action? What are, what are the best strategies for combating sharp power and defending the, um, the democratic nature of our open societies. Well, Glenn, I think you've also illuminated a critical aspect of this, which is that if we look at China, I think it's very important to note that while there is certainly a large degree of coordination across the various resources that the Chinese party state might apply, it's not to say that that's perfect. And it's not to say that it's wholly efficient. I think a better way to think of it is that it can be quite effective and that the authorities in China using, for example, nominally, nominally autonomous commercial enterprises or research-based enterprises or um, uh, organizations that have the appearance of being an independent NGO, uh, that these things are put forward with certain ambitions by the Chinese party state with an element of coordination and an ambition of effectiveness for their uh, goals. I think that's very important to understand. And as you rightly note, for democracies, which have um, far-flung institutions that tend not to coordinate, some which are governmental, uh, many which are independent, uh, non-governmental institutions that were still, I would say, in the early phases of determining the best way to respond to the sorts of influence coming from a country like China or Russia, for that matter, that seeks to compromise the integrity of independent institutions or free expression to induce censorship. I think what we've seen to date as the best sort of response is to first of all, identify the challenge 
and prioritize the challenge. Are universities finding that they're not able to defend their own standards because they're taking um, resources, whether it's research money or other forms of philanthropic uh, investments in ways that are not consistent with academic freedom, that are not consistent with these institutions' charters, for example? Are media enterprises taking resources ranging from cooperative partnerships with state media in a country like China or with some of these um, um, inserts that are so frequent with newspapers uh, from China and other such things? Are those being accepted in ways that will not compromise coverage? I think much of that has been unclear to date, but it's both a recognition of the problem uh, identifying ways that are consistent with liberal democratic standards to address these questions, and then uh, making those responses durable, achieving collective action where possible, for example, across a wide range of universities through various associations that might be uh, suitable for that purpose. In the media sector, it might be news outlets or news organizations that come to a conclusion that uh, they're able to refresh or um, upgrade the standards that they have in uh, the larger context so that they're not compromised by the agreements or relationships they have from authoritarian powers who may not share the same values and so on in other sectors that are quite relevant to these discussions. And I think today it's even true in the uh, sports and entertainment industry where we see uh, major sports institutions that for one reason or another, such as the National Bas Basketball Association, uh, will find themselves in some very difficult compromising situations relating to freedom of expression that be very much advisable to have standards um, and um, preparation in place to deal with those sorts of challenges should and when they arise. I think you put your finger on something very important that in sharp power, there's a very profound asymmetric and non-reciprocal dimension. China Daily can run inserts in American newspapers, but American newspapers do not have the freedom to run comparable inserts in Chinese newspapers. And so there's an extent to which sharp power uses the freedoms that we have in democratic societies and tries to weaponize um, those freedoms to the advantage of, of authoritarian states. Um, I was wondering, I'd like to play devil's ad advocate for a moment, because one often hears outside of the United States and outside of other democratic countries, the argument about sharp power that, look, all governments and countries engage in diplomacy and uh, soft power diplomacy, and they all have objectives that they want to pursue um, in various ways. What is so special about this concept, sharp power? Don't all countries engage in sharp power? What is your response to that argument? Well, of course, all countries, all states have strategic interests, and that's clear. I think what we need to focus on is the sort of power that's exerted from an open society where it's not simply the state that's exerting the influence, where voluntaristic, uh, independent civil society, whether it's from the cultural sphere, whether it's from the independent media sphere, whether it's from the uh, musical sphere and the arts, uh, when they're participating in this realm, it gives a whole different contour to the form of influence that's exerted. When you contrast this with countries that really uh, control any sort of independent sphere for, for any meaningful understanding of this. Today's China, I think, falls in that category. Uh, Russia, in large measure, many of the Gulf states would fall in that category. 
think we have to at least open our minds to a different um, scrutiny of the sort of influence that can reasonably be um, exerted. There aren't independent NGOs coming from Saudi Arabia and doing uh, work to support pluralistic independent media or human rights activity beyond that country's borders. Same goes for China under the Chinese Communist Party and their implications to that for the countries that are engaging with these countries that now are actually quite vibrantly engaging beyond their borders. It's not to say that um, some of the engagement from these authoritarian states uh, can't be beneficial and that investments they make uh, won't be welcomed by their outside uh, partners. I do think what's critical in the present environment is for the countries receiving this engagement uh, that are the objects of this to be very clear-eyed clear -eyed about what the uh, knock-on effects of that engagement can be, especially as it relates to the independence and integrity of critical institutions, including but not limited to the media sector, the educational sphere, the cultural sphere, the research sector, and so on, and importantly, the elites in these countries, so that they're not uh, co-opted or compromised in ways that really are at odds with um, the public good. And I think the more we scrutinize the engagement of the Chinese Communist Party state, for example, in so many different settings around the world, there are real questions about the um, adverse effects of this engagement, certainly as it relates to freedom of expression, in some ways freedom of association, and other such critical values for democratic integrity. And I think this is a, a new development, certainly not uh, as visible or as relevant as um, even a decade ago. And it's something that all open societies need to reckon with. Chris, you spend every day working very hard to um, promote clean, accountable government, to defend freedoms and promote uh, democracy around the world. And so I would be remiss if, it, if I did not ask you. Yesterday, we had a new administration take office in the United States that's identified democracy as a priority. And we've heard um, rumblings of perhaps assembling a group of democracies to begin the pushback against authoritarianism, the consolidation of democracy around the world. I was wondering if you could give us your two or three um, top items on your wish list for how um, we should go about doing that uh, in the United States. Uh, as we consider the new possibilities opened up by a new administration? So I think the first thing I would say, Glenn, is that um, what we've learned in the last decade or so globally is that the pressures and the crosswinds impacting democracy are quite acute and significant. And the U.S. has not been excluded from that. And I think one of the things that we all need to recognize is that today um, we're all in this together. Uh, if we didn't recognize this already, it's true, and that everyone who believes that liberal democratic values are important and deliver good outcomes and are important for human well-being, uh, we need to redouble our efforts and work even more cooperatively on this count. I think with the rotation of power in the United States, both in our executive branch and in um, the U.S. Senate, it's an indication that change is possible. It's a reminder on that count. And I do think that one of the things that my colleagues and I and uh, the United States more broadly will do will be looking to deepen cooperative arrangements and to work more um, uh, cooperatively. It's the best way to say it, 
to uh, make sure that we can defend and promote uh, values that are just so critical to uh, fundamental rights. It starts at home. It does indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much, Chris. That was Chris Walker, the latest installment in our conversations on China's global sharp power. We look forward to you joining us for future conversations. Thank you. Thanks Bye -bye. to you, Glenn. Thank mm -hmm. you.